Pym is a world leader in the study of present-day extinctions and what can be done to prevent them. His research covers the reasons why species become extinct, how fast they do so, the global patterns of habitat loss and species extinction, and importantly, the management consequences of this research. Pym received his BS degree from Oxford University in 1971 and his PhD from New Mexico State University in 1974. Pym is the author of over 350 scientific papers and five books. His commitment to the interface between science and policy has led to his testimony to both House and Senate committees on the reauthorization of the Endangered Species Act. In 2019, he won the International Cosmos Prize, which recognized his founding and directing Saving Nature, a nonprofit that uses donations for carbon emissions offsets to fund local conservation groups in areas of exponential tropical biodiversity to restore their degraded lands. Welcome, Professor Stuart Pym, to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. So you've worked to conserve elephants and lions in Africa on other projects in tropical forests in Brazil, the Andes, the Everglades. This really wide-ranging work on extinction and habitat loss. And I think you're one of the most frequently cited environmental scientists. So just wondering, when did your environmental awakening occur and why did you decide to become a conservation ecologist? I became a conservation scientist before we have the name for it. And it came because I found myself working in Hawaii in the late 1970s and being a very enthusiastic bird watcher. I had a list of all the birds that I wanted to see so I could add them to my life list. And even though I was in the field for months on end, I realized that many of the species I expected to see were extremely rare at best. And it was quite clear that some of them had gone extinct or on the verge of doing so. And that for me was a life-changing experience. I also saw endangered plants, plants that were down to the last one or two individuals in the wild. So I really realized that extinction was very real, that we were losing Earth's biodiversity. And I felt that I had both a moral responsibility to do something about that, but also I had the scientific background that I felt that as a scientist, I could understand why species were going extinct and come up with ways of preventing that. Yes. So just go into more detail about why species are going extinct. It's the ultimate question, why does this happen? If we want to understand the extinction crisis, we need to be able to measure it. And the way that my group has suggested we do that is to treat extinction like a death rate. If you were to say, well, how many people die in North America? And the answer is about 8,000 people per million people per year. The fact that it's now about 1,000 people more than that is a reflection about how badly we've been harmed by COVID. So we've got a death rate, 8,000 people out of a million people dying each year. We can do the same thing with extinction. We can look at groups that we know well, which are mostly vertebrates, birds and mammals and amphibians, but also now plants and a few other groups. And we can see that they're going extinct between about 50 and 500 extinctions. So species 
species deaths, if you like, per million species per year. So that's a death rate. And you might say, well, what would we expect? Well, we know what to expect in a way because we know how fast species are being born, how fast species diversify. And we know that from the fact that thousands of people around the world grind up little pieces of species and extract their DNA. And they come out with what's called a phylogeny. It's a family tree. And we know how fast species are being created. And what we're seeing is that species are going extinct somewhere between a thousand times faster than they're being created. So that's the measure of how bad the problem is. The issue is why is that happening? Where is that happening? And the where is very important. There are special places around the world. We call them biodiversity hotspots. And these are places like the Caribbean, the Northern Andes, the coastal forests of Brazil, Madagascar, Southeast Asia, where there are a huge number of species at risk of extinction. And they're at risk of extinction for two reasons. One of them is the species there have small geographical ranges. If I look outside in my home in North Carolina, I see birds out there like robins and mockingbirds. And those species occur all over North America. But when you go to these biodiversity hotspots, which includes Hawaii, you find species often have tiny geographical ranges. They may occur only on one island or on one mountaintop. And it's a lot easier to destroy the habitat of a species that occurs just on one mountaintop than one that has a huge geographical range. So the places where small ranges concentrate are vulnerable. The other aspect of this is that we are destroying those places. We're clearing the habitats. We're destroying the forests. So it's this collision of a lot of habitat destruction with a lot of vulnerable species. And those two things, when they come together, are responsible for about 90% of all the species that are at risk of extinction. About 10% are the endangered species that we're much more familiar with. Lions and tigers and so on. Those species have quite big ranges, but because they're fierce and dangerous, we tend to kill them. So it's a combination of species that are big and fierce and, and we don't like, and, and a lot of species that are very vulnerable because of where they live. Habitat destruction is a big piece of the puzzle. Of course, as we heat the climate, we are forcing species to move further north where it's cooler, but we're also forcing them to go higher in mountains. So the higher a species has to go to keep cool, the smaller the habitat there is. So global heating is also a cause of species extinctions because, again, we're shrinking the habitats. And so we have limited resources, and you've written about trying to protect the right parts of the earth, which I didn't understand at yeah. first. What does that mean, and how can we better concentrate our conservation efforts to do the most good? So much of going to the right places. And in a way, that's fortunate because it's not that we have to conserve everything. There are parts of the world that are much more important than others. When we go to those places, we often find that we've destroyed a lot of the habitats. So what many people around the world want to do is set aside more land for nature and more of the ocean for nature too. It's the same idea. And 30 years ago, there was very 
very little of the planet that was protected. Now, over the last 30 years, the governments of the world, nations around the world, have realized the need to protect more. And so the amount is about 17%. The countries that I think will eventually get together in Kunming and China to talk about the targets for the next decade hope to get to 30%. So nations in the world, including the United States, the Biden administration, Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom, President Xi Jinping in China, have all committed in various ways to try and protect about 30% of their countries. The challenge is to get the right 30%. It's very easy to set aside big areas where nobody lives, but they aren't always the places that protect a lot of biodiversity. I travel to China, at least I did before COVID, regularly. When I fly from the US to China, on the right kind of day, you fly right over the North Pole. Just before you get to the North Pole, you get to the northern end of Greenland. And the top end of Greenland is the world's largest national park. It's a million square kilometers, but it doesn't have a lot of species in it. So protecting more remote places isn't going to be as important for biodiversity as protecting places that are nearer to where we live, that have these special species that are so vulnerable. So identifying the key places is vitally important. When you do that, you often find that human actions have left habitats behind, but those habitats are fragmented. They're in pieces. So you have a patch of forest over there and another patch of forest over there. And those patches of forest may not have enough individuals in them to be viable. I mean, by chance alone, that patch may have two females and that patch may have two males. And if you don't get the males and females together, you're not getting any babies. So reconnecting nature turns out to be very important. I direct a non-profit called Saving Nature. And what we do is to raise funds to allow partners in the biodiversity hotspots in South America, in Africa, in Asia to buy land and restore habitats. We plant a huge number of native trees to try and reconnect nature so that the species can can get back together again. So I'm going back to COVID. How can we become more ecologically aware and entwine that with our economy so that we can prevent future outbreaks? Well, one of the awful results of COVID is to realize how poorly our efforts have been to contain it. A million Americans have died. Only two thirds of Americans are vaccinated at all. And only a third of Americans have had booster shots. So as a solution, vaccines aren't entirely satisfactory. Don't get me wrong. I've been vaccinated four times and I'm a big fan. If there's a fifth booster, I'll be one of the first to get it. But quite clearly they haven't done a sufficient job and they haven't done a sufficient job around the world. I mean, we're looking at an appalling number of people who've died globally. So what can we do? I don't think people recognize that many of the diseases that have caused so much pain have come from our abuse of wildlife. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was HIV. HIV came from chimpanzees in in West Africa. 
people went into the forest, clearing the forest, and they killed chimpanzees for bushmeat, butchered the chimpanzees to have a, a source of food. And probably in the process of doing so, they cut themselves and they got the disease that was originally in chimpanzees and then spread through our population of HIV. If we look at what happens with COVID, it was a disease that occurred in horseshoe bats in tropical China. We're not quite sure how it got from horseshoe bats into the wet markets in Wuhan, but I've been in some of those wet markets in China. They are remarkably unpleasant places where people go and buy live animals to butcher and eat. And it's widely thought that there was a transmission from the horseshoe bat to some animal, maybe a, a ferret or a civet, and then into humans. All of those processes and many others are diseases that we get from wildlife. And they come from our destroying tropical forests. And they come from moving animals around and moving animals around to eat. And the costs of stopping tropical deforestation, the costs of massively slowing wildlife trade are trivial compared to the costs of this pandemic. This pandemic has cost many, many trillions of dollars, as well as tens of millions of lives. And it's because we are not being sufficiently attentive to nature. We need to be stopping deforestation. We need to be slowing wildlife trade. So underpinning this problem of COVID is the problem of what we call spillover, how these diseases spill from animals into us. And those solutions involve ecological solutions, stopping deforestation, stopping bushmeat whenever possible, and so on. So as cities grow and take away habitats for wildlife, there's a rise of zoos um, and wildlife centers trying to keep these animals from extinction by breeding and keeping them in enclosures. Do these programs help in the long run with extinction or is it better to protect high biodiverse areas and animals instead? Well, sort of yes and yes. Look, I mean, I'm enormously fortunate. In six weeks' time, I'll be in Africa. I expect to be watching lions. There may be lions sniffing around my tent at night, which is the kind of experience that keeps you awake the first time. So I'm very fortunate to see wildlife in the wild. But it's not something for everybody that many people don't have those experiences. So what does a zoo do? A zoo allows many, many people, allows our children to go and and experience the wonder of nature. And so whatever the rights and wrongs of keeping animals in captivity, it does afford people a chance to sort of see a lion, see an elephant and go, wow, it's an incredible experience. So I, I do think that if I were given the choice, I would not abolish zoos. Now, can zoos help? Clearly they can. The, the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., for example, has a captive breeding program of a gorgeous little monkey called the golden lion tamarind that was almost completely wiped out. It was almost extinct. They bred those animals in captivity. They took them back to Brazil. They released them. When they did, the animals were really stupid. They were about as you know capable of looking after themselves in the wild as we would be if we were dumped into the wild. But eventually, enough of them learned to be smart and survive. And the golden lion tamarind numbers have increased substantially. Now, once that happens, we still have 
have to worry about how we restore habitats and connect habitats. Uh, and that's something that my group at Saving Nature has been very energetic at doing in, in Brazil. We've helped create two very, very important wildlife corridors that, that allow these populations to be connected. So yes, I understand the need for zoos. I understand the very valuable work that a zoo like the National Zoo can perform to keep animals going in captivity until we can put them back. But, but the final solution has to be to allow animals to survive in the wild. Yes, there's also lots of controversy around trophy hunting, and some argue that it can help protect wildlife conservation due to the money that goes back into local communities to help them protect from poaching. Do you believe that trophy hunting can help with the protection of endangered animals in the wild? This is a very, very emotional issue. Many years ago, I was in Kafui National Park, an extraordinary, it's in Zambia, extraordinary place. First time I saw a lion kill, a pride of lions brought an antelope down 30 yards from my tent. As we were leaving Kafui, we were south of the park and coming the other, we'd been in the field about a week. So we were smelly and the taxi flies were biting us and we looked pretty ratty from having been camped for a week in the tropics. Coming the other way in a brand new Land Rover in a very nice pressed uniform was a hunter with his gun, right? And he stopped and said, had we seen any leopards? And we assured him we had not seen any leopards. In fact, we'd seen one about 10 minutes earlier at the side of the road. And we hoped and prayed that that leopard had got the hell out of there after we left. I mean, how could anybody shoot a magnificent animal like that just sitting at the side of the road on a blob? Well, another 20 minutes down the road, we came to a village and we stopped very briefly. It looked to me as if several of the children that we saw probably wouldn't survive the night. They were clearly very, very sick indeed, almost certainly from malaria. You know, how much does it cost to save a child? The answer is about a dollar because that's how much a mosquito net costs. And I'm still very emotional about that. It was a horrible experience, one I've seen many times before. But what that hunter was going to pay would have bought an awful lot of mosquito nets. It would have bought a clinic, would have bought a nurse who might come around every couple of weeks. And if the children were sick, she could give them antimalarials. Now, you might say, well, you know, does that money from that hunter go into that community? And that's not always an easy question to answer. But the simple reality is that hunters bring in an enormous amount of money and it protects an enormous amount of wildlife. Hunting protects more wildlife wildlife in Tanzania than photography, ecotourism. So one of the strong proponents of hunting in Tanzania is my opposite number at Oxford, Amy Dickman. I've known Amy Dickman for a very, very long time, and neither her nor I would ever harm a flea, but she fully understands that if it wasn't for hunting, an awful lot of wildlife in Tanzania would disappear because it would go to other uses. So there are people who will be incredibly angered myself by saying it's hunting is okay, but ecotourism doesn't totally take care of the problem. My name is Marley Hinchberger and I'm studying environment, sustainability, and geography at the University of Minnesota Duluth. I've always had a love for animals and animal conservation, so talking and listening to Stuart Pym talk about the different ways that us as humans can help with conservation of living things was very educational and a great learning experience. I'd always believed that we needed to save every part of our earth, and while that is of course the ideal, 
how Dr. Pym describes the importance of protecting biodiversity hotspots and that those places keep the most plants and animals really opened my eyes to how fast we need to act as humans to protect not only the Earth's animals, but the habitats that they need to live. Dr. Pym's reflections on zoos and poaching had made me adjust my worldview as well. I had only known that zoos were bad and that animals needed to be in the wild. And while that's still true, zoos can do a lot to help revitalize endangered animals and bring them back to their habitats. Dr. Pym's story about the hunter and then the children also made me think significantly. These are very complex topics and I hope that these conversations can help people think about ways to protect endangered animals and our planet in different ways. Of the conservation efforts are go towards those large bodied charismatic animals, you know, the yeah. bears, the pandas, but there's so many other species that are neglected. So how can we inform and get people involved? Well, I think there's two things to this. I've worked a huge amount on pandas in China. I've never seen a panda in the wild. I've cut the closest I've come is to finding what my Chinese students very charmingly call panda poops. And the panda poop is a very nice little packet of freshly chewed bamboo. It doesn't smell badly. It just smells like fresh bamboo. They don't get a lot of nutrition. So with my Chinese colleague, uh, Professor Bin Bin Li, we've looked at what good protecting pandas does in China? What does it benefit? Well, the answer is it, it protects about 70% of all of China's unique birds and mammals and amphibians. So it's what we call an umbrella species. So protect pandas and you'll protect a lot of other species that you probably haven't heard of. So that's one argument. The other argument, of course, is that we should celebrate biodiversity, the places where we work in saving nature in, in Colombia, in in Ecuador, in Brazil, may not have charismatic species like the panda or the golden lion tamarind, but they do have an incredible variety of beautiful birds and mammals and amphibians and butterflies. And I think it behooves us to celebrate those species and to try to tell people what they are and where they are and how vulnerable they are and how we can save them. And speaking of birds, since you started on your ecological journey, billions of birds are disappearing, as you know, and it's kind of mind boggling. The statistics since 1970s, it's true that 600 million have disappeared from Europe. I don't know how many in US and Canada. It's a complicated issue. I think a lot of those disappearances come from the fact that we have massively intensified our agriculture. The large areas of North America and Europe are now under intense agriculture. They're sprayed with a whole variety of pesticides, which I think is also responsible for the fact that many insects have disappeared. So species that depend on farmlands have clearly declined dramatically. But it is isn't all birds, and there is a piece of this complicated story that involves water birds and herons and egrets and ducks. Those species, both in North America and Europe, are now much more common than they were 30, 40 years ago. That comes from active conservation of protecting wetlands, making sure we don't shoot uh, wetland birds. And, and so it's not all gloom and doom. There are some success stories. There are many things that we can do. I think 50 years ago, there were only something like 300 bulls 
bald eagles in the lower 48 states. Bald eagles are now nest in every state apart from Hawaii. Our conservation efforts have done a great job. I, I live at the outskirts of town in, in Durham, North Carolina. Typically in the morning, I will walk a couple of miles each way to my coffee shop and quite often see a bald eagle flying over. There are odd lakes nearby and in the morning sunlight, oh, that makes my heart sing. So there are things that we're doing that can bring species back. So I, I don't think people should be worried. It's not all gloom and doom. We should be worried enough to realize that there are bad things that are happening. We are destroying tropical forests. Tropical forests, so two thirds of all species of animals and plants live and we're shrinking them. That's causing harm to species. It's causing harm to the planet because in burning those tropical forests, we're putting a billion tons of carbon, that's carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's about 10% of global emissions. So we need to stop destroying tropical forests. We need to stop destroying them because if we do, we're going to get more diseases that are going to come from contact with species in the tropical forests. So there are some things we really need to pay attention to. But I think it's important to know that there are things that we could do as individuals, as societies, as nations to reverse some of these changes. Yes, and you talked about pesticides as being contributing to the decline of bird populations. I don't know how we're going to completely change our food production models, but what are your thoughts on some like vertical farming or some of these other initiatives and how we could get behind them? I'm not an expert on that, and I'm acutely aware of the complexities of the problem. I have to say, I'm not fortunate enough that essentially all the food I buy is organic. So we clearly have options to make personal choices when we can. I'm not entirely a vegetarian. I eat a little bit of meat. I eat rather more fish. But we can make personal choices that allow us to tread a lot more lightly on the landscape than we are at present. And you were involved in the reauthorization of the Endangered Species Act. What are its main provisions? Because you've been very active between both the public sphere and science. The Endangered Species Act, which started in, in 1975, plus or minus, is a remarkable piece of legislation. Once a species gets on the list, listed as we say, it's got a better than 99% chance of surviving. And when we look around, the bald eagles that I mentioned, which were on the verge of extinction, peregrine falcons, which were essentially extinct in the eastern United States, which are now uh, relatively common. They nest on buildings in New York and Raleigh. They nest on the cathedral in my hometown of Derby in the United Kingdom, we're quite capable of protecting species. And that act has done an extraordinary job of preventing species from going extinct. And I think we should we should recognize that. A century ago, there was a whaling industry that went out and killed enormous numbers of whales. Today, there's a whaling industry that involves people going out with their cameras and photographing whales on both coasts. And, and the current whaling industry is worth an awful lot more than the old whaling industry. We celebrate nature in a lot of ways. It's very good for our local economies. And the Endangered Species Act has protected the species that many tourists love to go and see. And so also we're living in the center of the city and across the globe, cities are growing at an unprecedented rate and now are home to the majority of the world's population. So by 2050, an estimated two out of three people worldwide will live in cities. What are some ways we can promote biodiversity in and around cities and accommodate our growing population without endangering species? Well, cities are a mixed blessing, but one of the blessings is having people concentrated in cities may be better for biodiversity than having them scattered across huge portions of the land. Landscape. What people don't always realize 
is that most of the food production in the world comes from places that aren't particularly rich in species. They come from areas that were originally prairies or steppe or felt open grassland areas. Now, there are unique species there, but relatively few of them. So by having prairies and similar habitats produce our food does, to some extent, take the pressure off the forests, particularly the mountain forests, where many of the vulnerable species live. So urbanization is not inevitably a bad thing for biodiversity. It can be good. It can be better. It can be more efficient. But I think the question you want an answer to is, well, can we make our cities cities more livable? Can we make them more biodiversity friendly? I think we have to, and we have to largely because of our own human well-being. There are many, many studies now that show that people who can have access to nature are not only psychologically healthier, but they're physiologically healthier too. Before COVID, I was spending a month, sometimes two, in China. That inevitably meant that I had to spend a few weeks each year in Beijing. I couldn't possibly live in Beijing, except it has a wonderful Olympic Park. It has a huge area that was set aside as woods and wetlands on the site of the Olympic Games. It's a beautiful place. And I go there every morning for a very, very long walk along with thousands, probably tens of thousands of Chinese who are very surprised to see a Lao Wai, a foreigner walking around at six o'clock in the morning. And, and I think everybody understands how restorative it is to be out in nature. So I think city planners have got that message and recognize that setting aside areas for nature, setting aside areas for biodiversity within our cities is good for nature and it's good for us. Yes, I think so. I'm, I'm excited about a lot of the initiatives. Uh, some of them are doable. Some of them are so vast. And as we get a chance to speak to William McDonough, and I would love for all of his dreams to come true. It takes time. Excuse me for asking a very simple question, but how does de-extinction work? It doesn't. I am not a fan of de-extinction. I think it, it, it's an absurd fantasy of people who haven't anything better to do with their time. So it doesn't work. And even if it did, I don't think it would be a very good idea. I mean, if you created a woolly mammoth, what on earth would you do with it? stick it in a zoo. We have no place to put it. And it's worse than that. I could go on and I could be thumping the table in about two minutes flat. It creates what I call a moral hazard. On the various occasions I've testified to both House and Senate committees on the Endangered Species Act, there's always been somebody who said, well, if we let species go extinct in the wild, we can keep them going in zoos and we can put them back. Uh, and de-extinction is an extension that says if we let species go extinct, we can always recreate them. The moral hazard of that is it encourages people to say, okay, we should chop down all our old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. And if we do lose a spotted owl, we can keep them alive in captivity and put them back. Or if we wipe out this species or that species, we have the technological capacity to put things back together again. We do not. And the answer is we should not destroy nature that much in the first place. So I don't think de-extinction has any great value other than to inflate already inflated egos. Yes, kind of touching on that. It seems that when you are trying to revitalize protected species or endangered species, that process can take quite a long time, as we've seen with bald eagles. How do you, when they become a population that is safe again, how do you keep protecting those species? 
Well, the bald eagle example is interesting. Supposing the bald eagle had only survived in, in captivity, would that be okay? Or, or if it had gone extinct, should we bring it back with a de-extinction? And the answer would be no. And even if we could, do we want bald eagles just sitting in a cage? The reality is that we brought the bald eagles back by, first of all, not shooting them, which helped a great deal. And second, by protecting habitat. And protecting habitat is really the sort of the fundamental solution. We we want to give species a home. We want to have old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. We want to see old growth forests here in the US Southeast, where the forests we have now are being chopped down. They're being converted into wood chips, which means that our forests are all very young and very unsuitable for a lot of species. Many of us would like to see old trees. We'd like to see those photographs where half a dozen people could not join hands and surround a tree because it's so big. We want those places and those places have value. So it's very much a matter of saying, what are the habitats? Let's keep the habitats. Let's restore the habitats. Let's connect the habitats, which is what we do at Saving Nature, so that those species will survive and thrive. Yes. So my university currently in Minnesota is bringing trees from southern Minnesota up into northern Minnesota to try and protect from the climate crisis. How does that affect habitats and endangered species and this trying to get ahead of climate change? Yeah, I mean, that's a really tough situation, isn't it? I mean, I understand why people do that. I mean, species are moving north considerably. They're moving up mountains considerably. I mean, what we'd like to do is sort of create habitat corridors so there's this continuous forest so that species move naturally. But I know that across the Midwest, we've, we've fragmented a lot of our habitats. So the only way the species can move is if we pack them up as seedlings in a truck and take them to where they want to go. I, I, I think that the speed of climate climate change is such that we're going to have to do that to protect some species. But trying to connect the forest, trying to restore the forest is the best solution if we can do it. And how can digital technologies help us examine extinctions and prevent them? Oh, I'm holding in my hand the most important biodiversity assessment tool, my cell phone. And on my cell phone is an app called iNaturalist, co-founded by Scott Clary, who did his PhD with me. So I claim to be a godfather of iNaturalist. And Naturalist allows everybody to do is to participate in understanding where biodiversity is. I can go out, I can take a picture of a flower that I don't know what it is, post it on iNaturalist, hope that somebody will identify it for me. And there's a legion of people who do that. And so that technology has had an enormous impact in terms of ensuring that we know where species are. It's also allowing us to know where species are going with climate change, of course. But as we know where species are, we know where to protect them. In some cases, those species are invasive plants that can do economic harm. So if we have a photograph of them, we know where to remove them. We also know how climate change moving things around. So this is a fantastic piece of technology, which is the first step in allowing us to manage nature competently. And with all the species who are endangered, I mean, I know you're going to Africa soon. How do you prioritize yourself? Which projects to work on? 
Well, what we do at Saving Nature is two kinds of mapping. We, we do this, what we call this strategic mapping of looking for the places where we think the greatest number of species at risk of extinction are. And then when we get there, we do what we call the tactical mapping, which is much smaller scale. And we say, what are the actions that we could take? So in coastal Brazil, for example, 15 years ago, we realized that there was an area in the state of Rio de Janeiro, and it was a very fragmented landscape. And we thought, well, what can we do? And when we did the tactical mapping, we said, look, there's, a, there's two nature reserves, the Union Biological Reserve and a place called Poço dos Santos, which means the place of the tapirs. And we thought the problem is those two places have isolated. But what we need to do is to work with our Brazilian partners to raise the money, buy the land, reforest the land and establish connections between them. And that's what we do. So smart mapping using remote sensing, satellite images, understanding where species are. There's good science that tells us where we need to act. And we should mention also your book, uh, The World According <laughs> to Pim. So I just wondering how it all began for you. You talked about being in Hawaii, but you were born in England. I mean, what were you like yeah. when you were young? You were already focused on this when you were young. I was enormously fortunate. My parents loved to hike, uh, and Derbyshire and Yorkshire is a beautiful part of Britain. My mum and dad met on a hike on a, a lovely little bridge across the River Derwent, which is where, in time, I scattered their ashes. So my earliest experiences were, were camping. we go camping whenever we could throughout the year, which meant camping in the wet and the cold, if need be. And, and so I was always encouraged to be interested in, in actual history, and, and so it, it grew out of that. So I was looking at flowers, collecting fossils, watching birds, all those sorts of things from as young as I can remember. And how do you pass that on to your own children, grandchildren? Yes, I'm about to take my two grandsons to Costa Rica in a few weeks' time. And I took their mum into the field when starting when she was eight to Hawaii. And then one year I bought a pair of binoculars. And I'm not sure she was really wild about the binoculars, but I also bought her a book of flowers. And she absolutely became hooked. And she's now a professor of, of tropical botany in Wisconsin. So yes, my younger daughter is not quite so fanatic but yes i believe in getting my kids out into nature at every opportunity yeah and you've mentioned citizen scientists apps and initiatives and ways we could all get involved at your own university what are some educational initiatives that you really support and think are doing wonderful work I, I think it's wonderful that we have student-driven initiatives, and many of them involve getting the students to go bird watching, to go out in nature. We have a lot of international students who are very excited about being able to explore the woods around North Carolina. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving, the next generation, the life lessons that have been important for you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? When Al Gore, in An Inconvenient Truth, talks about species going extinct a thousand times faster than they should, he's quoting me. So the question I get from journalists all the time is, how on earth do you get up in the morning? You know, the world's going to hell. You know, you are the purveyor of this awfully bad news. You know, how do you get out of bed every morning? Because there's so much we can do. There's so many things we can do. So I think that's a message that I would like to convey. It, it, it's grim. It's bad. But on the other hand, there's an incredible variety of different things we can do to ensure that we pass on this beautiful planet of ours to our children and our grandchildren. So I would want to pass on a measure of hope, of optimism, of the spirit that we can make a difference.
Well, thank you so much, Professor Stuart Pym, for welcoming us into the world according to Pym, your important work helping us understand what causes extinctions and how we can protect endangered species, their habitats and biodiversity. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet in Future Cities podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. One Plant Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Marley Hinchberger with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Plant Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplantpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.